Well, Father, we come before you, and we are just so um, uh, excited to be here and just to anticipate the victory that we have in Jesus, the final happy ending of our, of our lives and of our eternity that will last forever. And I pray that as we talk about happy endings, that uh, this will be something that will de- be deeply encouraging and, and stirring for all who are here. In Christ's name, amen. So I wanted to start my sermon with a question, honest question. How many of you love Hallmark movies? Raise your hand. Okay. I see men raising their hand. Of course, they're kind of doing this. Okay, yeah. Shameless, love Hallmark movies. Now, I came across this tweet, and I want you to tell me if this is true. The plot of every Hallmark movie is about a career woman who is too busy for love But she has to move to a small town where a handsome local bachelor teaches her about the true spirit of the holiday. It starts snowing and they kiss. There is also a dog. (laughs) Is that true? Is that okay? Kind of nailed it, right? You don't need to see any more Hallmark movies. There's the plot right there. But I think the, the, the reason why people like Hallmark movies is there's a guaranteed happy ending every time. And I can kind of relate to that. I I have this habit of watching old sports games where my team always wins, right? (laughs) I watched the 2008 Jayhawk National Championship game once a year (laughs) just to pick me up. And I I don't necessarily like movies where where I know the main character is going to die. And certain members of my family um, claim that that makes me a shallow person. They explained to me that the death of a main character is rich with meaning and metaphor, that there's a message behind it about the depths of human experience and emotion. And do you know how I tell this unnamed family member? Becky? (laughs) If being shallow is wrong, I don't want to be right. (laughs) Now you know what she lives with. Let's go watch Avengers. All right, let's go. Not the last one, though. But, you know, honestly, in drama, there's two, there's two kinds of story arcs, right? You, you have the comedy, right, which has the, the happy ending, the wonderful resolution, and then you have the tragedy that ends in some sorrow or sadness. Two musicians fall in love, and it enhances both of their careers, but one surpasses the other, and the other one turns to substance abuse, addiction, the relationship falls apart, and then he dies. And people like these kinds of movies because there is a depth of the human experience. It's easy to feel senses of compassion for that. If you've ever loved somebody who had an addiction, you watch that movie, and you You feel like somebody is speaking to you, they relate to you, they understand you, and they understand your story. It's easy to have just pity on those characters. Now, if you do watch tragedies to a certain extent, you are, in in a sense, in touch with the human experience because we know at the end of all things is what? Death. Vanity of vanities. The author of Ecclesiastes, right, he has that enlightened sense that this is the end of all things and has a a depth and perception of the world. In contrast, you have the comedy. 
right? Where there's enough death in this world, I don't want to think about it. I want to believe that there might be a, a happy ending. So what is to be preferred? Well, well the truth is, um, if you're an atheist, or if you don't believe in the Lord, or if you're not a, a Christian, life is a tragedy. All the joys and the triumphs that you will ever experience will be in this life only, and at the end, you will die. But for the people of God, there will be a happy ending. Because when you belong to God, the author of, uh, of history, he's going to make sure that his people enjoy the comedy in the end. And so when we go through Ruth, we see a happy ending. In fact, we see three happy endings. Turn with me to Ruth 4, 13 through 17. And just to bring you up to speed, uh, the, the shrewd strategizing of Boaz allowed him to uh, talk and deal with the other kinsman redeemer and basically redeem Naomi's land through a marriage to Ruth. And now we have the, the epilogue of what will happen in the end. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. Now, from this passage, we see three happy endings. You see a happy ending for Ruth. You see a happy ending for Naomi. And you see a happy ending for Israel, right? This is a comedy. This is a, a happy ending. And, and as I thought about this, um, sometimes happy endings can be a little bit tricky, Something that, that in this life, right, they're not as happy as you think. You, um, you have two sisters who grew up together and are best friends, and uh, they, they live together, and they're in their 30s, approaching middle age. Both of them long to get married. Well, one of them, the younger one, meets the man of her dreams, and she does get married. And he had this great wedding celebration. Well, it's a happy ending for one. It's not a happy ending necessarily for the other, as, as this happy ending almost leaves her excluded, wondering if her time will come. And I know as I, I've gone through Ruth, and we've talked about suffering and loss and depression and bitterness and all these deep themes, it, it's been really easy to, I think, really enjoy the book because many of you relate to Naomi. You are where she is. You have suffered disappointment in, in some way. Uh, perhaps a relationship did not work out. Perhaps somebody close to you uh, passed away. And when 
Naomi is talking about her own bitterness, you're like, I understand. There's almost a fellowship of suffering, right? There, there is comfort. I mean, that's part of the reasons why we're drawn to tragedies. We, we relate to those people. But then all of a sudden, there's a happy ending at the end, and, and you think, I kind of feel left behind. When will my happy ending come? And when that happens, I think it's important to pull back the curtain and see what's behind the happy ending. What is behind the happy ending? And this is what's behind the happy ending, or who's behind the happy ending. It is a God who runs the universe, who bends all events for the good of his people whom he loves. And happy endings come in different shapes and sizes, and they have different times. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at each of these three happy endings and then kind of do a, a kind of a reflection on happy endings in general and just talk about who's behind the happy ending. So let's start with Ruth's happy ending, okay? Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now, a little backstory. Ruth met Malon, Naomi's son, while she was in Moab. He was sojourning there because they were trying to escape the famine. They met and they married, and for 10 years, they were a husband and wife, and they never produced a son. Now, Elimelech, Malon's father, died 10 years previously. Then Malon dies, and now she is left grieving the loss of her husband and has this shared fellowship with uh, Naomi, who's grieving the loss of her son. Naomi returns to her homeland, to the land of Judah, because she hears that they, they have been blessed with uh, a harvest, and Naomi tries to push Ruth away, but Ruth insists, I'm coming with you. Your people will be my people. Your gods will be my gods. Don't let anything separate me from you. And now she is in a foreign land. And when you look at just where she was on the social hierarchy, she was at the bottom. Let me explain. On top of the social structure, you would have the king. Below the king, you would have the clan leader. Or you'd have, below the king, you'd have a tribal leader, then a clan leader or a sub-clan leader. Boaz was in this category. Then you'd have the older father, the younger father, the oldest son, the son. And then you would have the wife. That's where Naomi would be. Underneath the wife, you have the daughter. Underneath the daughter, you have the male servant. Underneath the male servant, you have the female servant. Underneath the female servant, you have the male foreigner. And underneath the male foreigner, you have the female foreigner. She had no social status. She was single. She's been married for 10 years, and for 10 years, she never produced a son. If somebody's looking to get married to produce offspring, Ruth would not be on your list. Well, maybe she had money. Well, she didn't. Maybe she had family connections. Well, she didn't. She had nothing to offer except for her character except for her character. 
And God worked through Boaz so that Boaz took her and she became his wife. And right there she was elevated. Where she's not just the wife, she is the wife of a clan leader, one of the leading men of the village. And not only was she elevated there, we see in verse 13, and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now this speaks of a husband entering the bridal chamber to engage in intimacy, and from this intimacy, the Lord opened her womb, and she gave birth to a son. Right? In all of this, you see the blessing of God upon her. Now, previously, we, we see little kindnesses along the way. Remember how she just happened to go out looking for work and just happened to be in Boaz's field and Boaz just happened to be a kinsman redeemer and, and Boaz just happened to show up when, he, when she needed him the most. We also hear of Boaz's blessing in, in Ruth 2, 11 through 12, where he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done and the full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge. And so he blesses her. May you find shelter underneath the wings of the Lord. And remember the symbolic act that he did? He covered her with his cloak, symbolizing protection. He would be the answer to his own blessing. And so what we have here is, number one, the providence of God working through circumstances. You have the kindness of God working through his people, namely Boaz, who is giving her hesed love on behalf of the Lord, and then the Lord directly intervening by opening her womb and producing a son. And so, yes, she has a husband, she has a child, but more importantly, she has the favor of the Lord, and that is the happy ending for her. Ruth has a happy ending. Doesn't get much happier for a Moabite woman living in Judah, does it? Second happy ending is the happy ending for Naomi. For Naomi. Moving on to verse 14. The village women, the village women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Now, the return of the village women kind of takes you back to chapter 1 where they look at Naomi and say, Naomi, is that you? Do you remember that? She left a dignified woman, and then she's coming back a shell of what she used to be, and they almost didn't even recognize her. Now, previous to these events, Naomi lost her husband, then 10 years later, she lost her two sons. She lost everything. And she was making her way back to Judah. Her two daughters-in-law are following her. And do you remember what, what she says to them? She's trying to shoo them away. She says, No, my daughters, Ruth 1.13, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That sovereign 
hand of God has reached down from heaven and slapped her around. She has a bitter life. There's really nothing to show for it. God doesn't seem to like her. And when the women say, Naomi, is that you? She says in Ruth 1.20, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. I had two sons and a husband. And the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means pleasant, when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me, right? The favor of the Lord has left her. He brought calamity upon her. She left full. She has come back empty. And now listen to what the women say. The women said to Naomi, verse 14, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Right? He has given you a Redeemer. Someone who will help the family name to live on. Someone who will take care of you in your old age. And they ask a blessing upon this Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. May he be made famous. May, may he be given the, uh, the Hebrew equivalent of the last name Kennedy or Vanderbilt or Rockefeller or in Kansas Coke, right? He shall be to you, and this is the, a really interesting phrase, a restorer of life. Literally, it means a bringer-backer of life. May he bring back life. May he return life to you. Now, remember what she said? I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. What they're saying here is, may this son of yours bring back life. Give your life back. To you. May he be a nourisher in your old age. May he be the one who takes care of you, provides for you, tends to you. All of these are the blessings of the Lord, which has been procured through what means? Verse 15. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Now, seven sons, that's like the ideal family, right? Especially if you're doing a musical about brothers and brides or something like that. It just kind of fits, kind of fits. But that's the ideal family. That's the ideal family, seven sons to carry on the name. That is when your heart would be full. And if you were to ask Naomi, what would make up for this? Well, I wish I had seven sons. I wish I had two sons. But in a twist, the women recognize that Naomi, your daughter-in-law, remember the one you tried to shoo away? She's worth more to you than seven sons. That is how much of a blessing she is to you because of the deep love this woman has for you, Naomi. Right? See how the, the happy ending is procured by the providence of God working through one of his servants who has demonstrated Hesed love. And then he does, and then Ruth does something unusual. Look at verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became 
his nurse. Now, according to the letter of the law, once Boaz and Ruth had a son, all he had to do was take the name, manage the property, and as he has sons, pass on the name that was given to him, and also take care of the widow associated with the property. Right? That's all that he really had to do according to the letter of the law. But in this case, and so Ruth could have just kept Obed for herself, raised him in her household, treated him like her son with a different last name, just knowing that he's going to have to take care of Naomi later on. But what she does is she actually gives Obed to Naomi to be his nurse, to be his nurse. Now, in one of my earlier sermons, I made an allusion to this study that Paul Miller shares in his book, Commentary on Ruth, where there's a renowned psychologist who asked the question, if you were in a boat that was sinking and you were the only one who could swim, and in this boat was your spouse, your child, and your mother, and you knew you could only save one, who would you save? Now, in the West, 60% of the respondents said they would save the child, and 40% would save their spouse. But among Muslim men, the most patriarchal society that we have on the planet today, 90% of them said they would save their mother. Right? For, for someone who grows up in patriarchy, where you have no identity outside the home, the strongest and most precious relationship that you can have as a woman would be with your son. And so, yes, Obed could have been just this redeemer, but what Ruth does is she makes sure that Obed has a relationship with Naomi. She will be his nurse, his foster mother. You could say his grandmother. Now, I've heard it said that grandchildren and grandparents are natural allies. Grandparents are like, guilty. <laughs> oh, sure, you can have another Twinkie. It's fun. They're kind of strict sometimes. I know. I raised them. <laughs> but there's a relationship. Like Obed will have a deep heart affection for Naomi. And so when he performs his duty of taking care of her in his in her old age, it will be a delight because they have that relationship. They have practically a grandmother-grandson relationship. And all the women of the neighborhood, verse 17, gave him the name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. This is the kindness of Ruth to Naomi. Naomi went away empty and the Lord brought her back full and given her a son whose name is Obed. Do you guys know what Obed means? Literally, it means servant. And so when you have the name Obadiah, that is a servant of Yah or Yahweh, the Lord's servant. In this case, he would be a servant of Naomi. But there's another implication too. He would be a servant of Israel, which brings us to the last happy ending, a happy ending for Israel. Now, remember the opening of the book. 1-1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
Now, for those of you who are going through the Read the Bible in a Year program, you know that Judges is a book right before Ruth. And at the tail end of Judges, which incidentally would be considered a tragedy, you have a fascinating and disturbing narrative. It begins in Judges 19.1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Right, It's almost locating the whole narrative where, what, where we have Ruth. Well, what happens is his concubine is unfaithful, returns to her home in Bethlehem, and the Levite travels to retrieve her. He manages to get her and, and force her to come back home, and they travel through the land of Benjamin. And as they are overnighting, staying at a host home, the men of the village from Benjamin surround the house and demand that the Levite come out so they can have sexual relationship with him and, and rape him. And what the host does, this is all in the Bible, by the way, okay? It's in the Bible. The PG-13 part of the Bible, or whatever. They, um, the host forces the concubine to go out so the men can satisfy their lust. They have their way with her all night then leave her for dead on the doorstep. The husband comes out, sees his concubine on the ground, says, get up. She doesn't because she's dead. And so he decides to extract revenge. He cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her each piece to the 12 tribes of Israel as a summons to avenge this horrendous act. And the 11 tribes all unite against Benjamin, and there is a bloody civil war. And then the tribesmen decide that we will not give our daughters in marriage to the Benjamites. But then they have second thoughts where they realize, well, then how are they going to perpetuate? This still is a tribe of Israel that the name has to continue on. And so they devise a plan where the Benjamites are to hide outside this city. And as the women who are celebrating the grape harvest come out, presumably drunk, and start dancing, the men are to kidnap the women and then marry them. That's the judges when there was no king in Israel. It was a very dark time, and, and one thing about Ruth is you kind of read that in the backdrop, and it's like, well, good, I'm glad not everybody was like that. But we are given a surprise as you were reading through Ruth. Verse 17, they named him Obed, the father of Jesse, and people are thinking, boy, that seems familiar. The father of David. Bam, there it is. You mean this was David's great grandpa? I know David. I know David. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart. I mean, after the time of the judges, 
Israel decided that they had enough, and they said, we want a king like all the other nations. And so God gave them a king like all the other nations. They gave him Saul. Saul was a head taller than everyone else. He was very handsome to look presidential. And they said, that's our king. And while he had the look of the king, he had a heart of a tyrant. And so after he serially disobeyed God, God took away the kingdom from him and sent out Samuel on a mission. And, 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 and Samuel is kind of looking for the right kind of king. He goes to Jesse's house and they're bringing in all the, the, the sons. So they're all auditioning for the part of the king. And, and, they're like, and Samuel says, I think this guy might be it. And the Lord says, man looks at the outside, but the Lord looks at the, the heart. And then here's a little shepherd boy, David, who has a heart for the Lord. And you know the famous story about David and Goliath? All the armies of Israel were cowering as this giant Philistine was mocking God. David had none of it. He slayed the giant. And then he faithfully, with integrity, eventually took the throne. The Psalms were written predominantly by David. He led the people of Israel in worship. He conquered Jerusalem and established it as the new, the new uh, capital of Israel. He even made arrangements so that the Lord's dwelling place, the temple, could dwell on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. There was no king like David. David presided over the golden age of Israel. And something that you see is that during this dark time, there was a faithful remnant of people who had Hesed love, who produced a son who would be an expression of God's Hesed love for Israel. Now, next week, we're going to talk about more of the Christological implications of this and the son of David. But for now, the media context, the, the readers would know, wow. It is through these people that God is giving a happy ending for Israel that they produce David. Now, in all of this, you see how the providence of God is all working together. And the providence of God, he's using the people of God to accomplish happy endings. And I want to make some observations about happy endings to kind of wrap up this, this message. It's going to take 15 minutes, so don't get too excited, okay? I said wrap up, and that causes reactions in people's minds. But the first one is that God is the author of every happy ending. God is the author of every happy ending. Now, the book of Ruth is considered a literary masterpiece. It is tight, it is compact, it is well-written, and written in beautiful language. It is an accurate retelling of events that actually happened. Ultimately, who wrote the book of Ruth is unknown, but we know who wrote the circumstances, and that is the sovereign God. We see his hand everywhere. He is the one who, through the famine, drove Elimelech and his family to Moab, where Malon would meet Ruth. He is the one by who, through some tragic circumstances, moved them back to Judah. He is the one who orchestrated the events that led to Boaz and Ruth meeting each other and he is the one who opened the womb in the end. He is the author of the story. He is uh, the person behind the happy ending. Okay, so number one, God is the author of every happy ending. And number two, God imparts happy endings 
to his people through his people. God imparts happy endings to his people through his people. Now, remember this was written during the time of the judges, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eye. And just because they were living in Israel didn't mean that they were truly a part of Israel. Paul says in, in Romans 9, 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, right? Not everyone who is a Jew is a true believer. Now, in the case of Ruth and Boaz, were they true believers? Yes. How could you tell? How could you tell? Because they exemplify that hesed, faithful, loyal love to people who may not necessarily deserve it. And it is through Ruth and Boaz that they collectively redeem Naomi and rescue her from her own bitter fate. God uses faithful people. And these faithful people are demonstrated by their love. Jesus tells his disciples the night before he's about to be crucified, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the fruit of conversion. And what's true in the New Testament, as far as love being a fruit of Christian conversion, is also true in the Old Testament where love is the fruit of conversion in Israel. When you have a new heart, the new heart is characterized by love. And what often happens with people who love others is that they're willing to sacrifice their happy endings for the happy endings of others. Kind of like Jesus. Did he not sacrifice his earthly happy ending for your happy ending? You think about a young lady who commits herself to reaching out to the socially awkward in, let's say, the college ministry. When a new person comes, she is there. She is talking to them, bringing them in, meeting with them. Even though these people might be needy and, and demanding and struggling, she is pouring out herself for the good of these people. And, and all the while, she is so focused on this that she's not able to maybe deepen the friendships that she wants. Uh, many times she might feel lonely um, She's not necessarily someone who is being asked out or dating because she's not necessarily doing what it takes to catch a man. Who knows? And in the end, she watches all her peers get married and kind of wonders if there is a happy ending for her. But you know what else happened? All those people that she reached out to that came in looking for a friend that she was a friend to, that came in looking for some help and was helped, that was looking just to understand Jesus Christ and she acted the part, they all are having happy endings at her own expense. Sometimes when you give happy endings to people, it does come at a cost to yourself. But you know what? Ultimately, that is the price that Jesus paid for a while. But what happened with Jesus? Right? He died on the cross, was humiliated the whole way. And in response, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Right? Ruth sacrificed much to give Naomi a happy ending. And in the end, God gave her favor and gave her that happy ending. And he'll give all those people who give happy endings to other people at their own expense the ultimate happy ending, right? There is an ultimate happy ending for the people of God. Now, as Christians, there are many benefits, right? We are free from the burden and shackles of sin. We don't have to be selfish. We don't have to be bitter. We don't have to be angry. Uh, there is the, the fellowship and the community that we have as Christians. But there's also this next reality that we will enjoy when all of us will be in heaven simultaneously. I mean, when you look at heaven, I think one of the joys of heaven is this. Not only will you be having a happy ending, everybody who is present will enjoy a happy ending as well. Let's say you have the happy ending where your team wins the big game. Your team wins the big game. Anybody who's compassionate would also realize that as much as that big game win encouraged us, it's devastating for the other team. That's why there's always an active class to go console the other team. When your big wedding day comes, you finally got married, your big day is colored by the fact that somebody is hurting because their term has, turn hasn't come. When you finally have that baby and you and some friends kind of soldier through life, both struggling with infertility, but you have your baby somewhat diminished, right? If you're compassionate, you will feel that, right? But here's the good news about heaven. You won't need to do that in heaven because everyone is going to be celebrating. No one there will be disappointed with their lot. All of them will have a simultaneous happy ending. It will be a celebration where everybody, everybody will have undiminished joy. That's what's waiting. Now, knowing that, Happy endings give us perspective on unhappy times. Now, as I mentioned, I have this habit of watching old games. And I, I tend to watch the games where there's a little bit more drama, right? If you had to rewatch a game, would you rather watch a blowout or a miracle finish when your team wins? Yeah, come on, miracle finish. Miracle finish every time. Because when you watch that and you see, oh, that was a bad call. Oh, that person got injured. You know that it's going to resolve itself in a wonderful way. Sure, the Chiefs fell behind by 25 points. Sure, they're down by three with 13 seconds left. You just watch what's going to happen. It's going to be awesome. Right? The more obstacles, the greater the drama. Now, we know from Scripture that we will have a happy ending. We know from Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, have you guys ever seen like the old Batman shows from the 60s? They are so diametrically opposite of the current take on Batman. They're campy, they're corny, they're predictable, but every episode, Every episode, Batman got into a fix. 
He's in this giant hourglass, and above him the sands are going down, and he will soon drown in sand. And apparently the joker has a bank to rob and says, let's get out of here. You know that this is season three, and there's four more seasons to go. Batman's getting out of there. It's just a matter of how. So when you're going through these difficult times and you're like, man, I don't know how this is going to be used for good. Well, you know that it will. You just may not see it at the time. And sometimes the good may not be discerned immediately. Uh, Sometimes we are privileged to see how it works out in this life. Uh, We have certain assurances from Romans 5, 1 through 5, that there's some guaranteed blessings. All right, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We know that in the end, the Lord is going to do something at a minimum as character. And maybe God will like decode everything and answer all those questions in this life. Maybe he'll do it in the life to come. Maybe in the life to come, we won't care that much. I don't know. But God has all kinds of different means at His disposal. But if you are a Christian, if you belong to the people of God, you will have a happy ending. And all of these obstacles that you're facing right now, you will be able to look back at life and say, I see what the Lord was doing. Ruth, when you go through it a second time, knowing that there's a happy ending, it changes the way you hear Naomi's words and what happens. You know that, that there is a bottom that is, that is coming, but then she will go straight up past that because God will exalt her. If you are a Christian, if you belong to the people of God, your God will give you a happy ending. But what if you don't belong to the people of God? If you don't belong to the people of God, and if you don't belong to God, if you've rejected God, your life will not have a happy ending. It will end in tragedy. The next life will be one of self-loathing, torment, and and suffering. And perhaps in the providence of God, He brought you into this room to hear this sermon so that you can reevaluate what you're living for. You know, perhaps there's something in your life that you don't want to quit. There's something you don't want to give up. You don't want to completely surrender your life to the Lord. You think that maybe I can just delay my repentance a little bit longer. Okay, I'm convicted now, but I'll deal with it. But here's the deal with conviction. If you know you need to change and refuse to do it, this conviction holds. That unpleasant feeling of conviction will still be haunting you. And if you don't change and go the direction of the conviction, do you know what you have to do to get rid of that that feeling? You have to harden your heart. And when you harden your heart, you stop feeling that conviction and you go further and further and further down the road 
towards your own damnation. This is a chance to stop. In the end, no pleasure of this life can match the happy ending to come. God loves his people. He sent his son to die for his people, but God chose his own love for us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when you give your life to Jesus Christ, there is a happy ending for you. Ultimately, this world is a tragedy. It will end tragically for all people. But in the end, for the people of God, it will be a comedy. It will be a happy ending because we will be part of a grand, great celebration in the future. And all of those difficult times, all of the low points, we'll see how God triumphed over all of this and how he actually worked good for his people. Behind every happy ending is a God who loves his people. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for the hope that we have. And Lord, I, I look around and know there's various degrees of suffering and various degrees of joy. But in the end, we'll all end up in the same place. And I just pray that as a people of God, we will continue in faith and hope, knowing that there is a happy ending in the future. And Lord, we, we don't want to diminish the trials of this life, but at the same time, Lord, help us to keep them in perspective and to move forward with hope. And I pray for anyone here who is on the outside looking in, who knows that you know, they're not part of the people of God, that you will move them to work that way, to commit themselves, to give their lives to you, so that you will seize control and direct them to an ultimate and good end. In Christ's name, amen.